Hello there, everybody, and welcome back to the Garden State of Hockey podcast, bringing you all things from Devil's history as we wait to see what happens with the 2019-2020 season. Uh, It's not looking so good at this current moment, and that might not be the worst thing for Devils fans as they get to have an extended offseason. But in the meantime, we're going to continue to go through some of our favorite and uh, maybe an occasional least favorite game in Devils history, but we're sticking with the favorites for now as this week we decided to talk about the Devils' famous Game 7 win in the Eastern Conference Finals of 2000 against the Philadelphia Flyers. Now, I don't think a lot of you out there need the context necessarily, but my co-host John Fisher will gladly give you some context into how legendary that 1999-2000 season was. And the reason I say a lot of you might not need it is because they just celebrated their 20th anniversary this year, so there's a lot of content put out by the team talking about how successful this team was and really how special this collection of players was from you know personality perspective and really from an offensive perspective so john do you want to give us a rundown of what that season was like so the new jersey devils were one of the most dominant teams in the nhl they finished the season with 45 wins 24 losses eight ties and five overtime losses for 103 points they scored 251 goals and to put that in perspective that's more goals scored than anybody else in the eastern conference and just behind the juggernaut that was the Detroit Red Wings over in the Western Conference. So the Devils were actually one of the most high-scoring teams in the entire NHL. They were led by the A-line. Patrick Eliash had his absolutely monster 96-point season, which to this day is still a New Jersey Devils record. Uh, Jason Arnott and... Uh, Peter Sikora were absolutely fantastic along with Elias. Those three just worked magic together. And then on the second line, you had the rookie sensation, Scott Gomez, coming straight out of out of the WHL, right into becoming a back-to-back two-way force. And on his side was Alexander Mogilny, who had a monster season of his own. And uh, he was acquired in that season. He would go on to have more of a monster season in the following season. But he was the guy already to make that uh, offense go to that next level. They were well supported by the return of Claude Lemieux, who after an acronomious uh, breakup with Lou Lemerel and the Devils after an arbitration hearing, he was re-signed by the Devils and things would work out in that well favor. Bobby Holik was growing his reputation of being a two-way monster. And I'm using the word monster a lot, but that's because this team really was a monster. You had the legend Martin Brodeur Annette near the peak of his career. You had Scott Stevens, Scott Niedemar, the the incoming Brian Rafalski, really solidifying the defense, and a rookie named Colin White, who would also further that top four. They had um, incoming uh, young guys like John Madden and Jay Pandolfo being in, integrated into the squad. So we're getting a whole lot of things happening to this roster here, and the de- and the record speaks for itself. The Devils really were one of the best teams in the league. However, they ran into one of the few teams that had a better record than the Devils Mm -hmm. in that season in the Eastern Conference Finals. The Philadelphia Flyers, who took the division and the Eastern Conference crown by just two points. And the Flyers were fearsome. They gave up very few goals, only 179, the fewest in the Eastern Conference. Brian Boucher was a very young sensation. Eric Desjardins was a fantastic defenseman. And, of course, they were led up front by the likes of Eric Lindros and John LeClaire and Mark Recchi and even future NBC uh, commentator Keith Jones. Yeah, and there's so many names on there that ended up being successful in the hockey world after that, after 
being players. There's so many players in this game on both sides that ended up having such prominent roles um, in, in any level of hockey organizations. And it's cool to see because clearly there's a lot of great hockey minds at work in this game and in this series in general. And just to set the stage for this game that we watched, you know, in an in a conference final, a team had never come back down three to one. Obviously, that has changed since. But the Devils found themselves staring down that deficit, and it would have been a massive disappointment to go down to a division rival, especially that way. But they had to do something that involved, you know, winning two games in Philadelphia, and also, weirdly enough, game six when the Devils won it was their first win at home of the series. Yeah, and. Again, it's not like the Flyers are just this, you know, Cinderella story. They came out there again. They were the top team in the Devils division. They were the top team of the East. So this very much was a one versus two matchup in the conference. And it looked like the Flyers had the Devils number in the first few games. But supposedly Larry Robinson threw a trash can around, yelled a whole lot. And the players decided to uh, rally around that trash can uh, rant and just take it to the Flyers, you know, almost like a cliche one game at a time. And they just inched their way back into that series. And in game six, that um, infamous game six, you know, you had the big goal, you know, in a 2-1 win, because that's how the Devils did business a lot back then, a lot of (laughs) 2-1s, you know, all in the third period, you know, Claude Lemieux gets gets him on the board. Alex Mogilny makes it 2-0. Eric Lindros gives the Flyers a little bit of hope at the end, but it ends at 2-1. So it was very much a shutout for the majority of the game from Artem Berdor, who faced all of 26 shots and uh, I'm sorry, he faced all of 13 shots and Brian Boucher faced all of 26 shots uh, for two for two allowed. So this was very much a goaltender's duel. It was a very tight, intense game. You don't know when the shot was going to come, but if it was going to come, it was going to be a good one because both teams were doing a very good job of keeping the other team at bay up against the perimeter, and a whole lot of physical play. And remember, the Devils wouldn't even be at this point without their deadline acquisitions that you mentioned earlier in Lemieux and McGillney. They they really needed every single person to chip in to get there. And Lemieux, as we all know, has one of the best playoff legacies of any player that's played, not just for the Devils, but for any franchise. He Absolutely. Everywhere he went, he found playoff success. So crucial to get him back and crucial to set the stage for deciding game seven and the broadcast that i watched of this was from ntv sport which is a russian tv channel doing um the translated broadcast from espn so it still had all the espn music and graphics and some of the um sideline reporting that was being done that game but obviously they had their own spin on it so i i wanted to check it out as a matter of curiosity, just to see what they were talking about and what they chose to emphasize and who they chose to focus on. And really early on, there was something that I was reminded of that I don't think a lot of people um, necessarily knew about, but John Madden almost wasn't in this game. He actually ended up coming in and causing Sergei Nemchinov to be a healthy scratch for the Devils. Yeah, and that was a crucial move by Larry Robinson since uh, you did get to see Madden not just with the fourth liners of uh, Randy McKay and um, Steve Kelly. There's a name that few Devils fans would recognize. <laughs> I won't but, lie. I did not know he was on the team. <laughs> but Madden had his minutes rewarded with penalty kill shifts. And as the game went on, he did get bumped up a line. So he eventually did play a solid 13 minutes. It would be a harbinger of something to come 
through the rest of Madden's time as a New Jersey Devil of being that bottom six, you know, middle six center who can kill a lot of penalties, take a lot of tough shifts, tough zone starts, and come out ahead. You know, he'll do a lot of the dirty work. So guys like the A-line or Mogilny and Gomez, they don't have to take on the tough stuff. They can go on and take care of the uh, quote-unquote more favorable stuff. Mm -hmm. So the puck drops and the broadcasters immediately start talking about Sergey Breland and how, you know, of course they're going to talk about the Russian guy, but he's on a line with Scott Gomez and um, who was the McGilney at that point. Mm -hmm. And it it was interesting to see because they had a very different interpretation than what um, you and I talked about before this official recording started in that that line did not have the greatest night. There was a lot of missed opportunities, missed chances, but they were framing it more as, you know, wow, of all the lines on the devils to get chances, they seem to have the most. And I I think there's a combination of things where they did miss a lot of chances, but they also had some of the best ones to be able to miss on. If you get what I'm saying, I think there are a lot of, um, weird puck bounces off of McGilney especially and some interesting decision making on their part but you know we launch into the game and the first five minutes are pretty much tilted in Philadelphia's favor the puck is going down the ice towards Martin Brodeur and he is he's standing strong and really just watching this game back everything that Martin Brodeur did is something that I know that Devils fans didn't take for granted while he was playing but just watching it back and seeing the ease with which he stick handles his positioning the really the poise that he had in net it's it's just so impressive and refreshing to think back to you know his his peak that way and Really, I can't emphasize enough the stick handling. He really looked like when they were down a man, he was a fifth man. He could just dump mm-hmm. the puck right out. He didn't even think twice about it. No one can get it from him, and he was just confident on it. Absolutely. I mean, you've heard for years and years and years, oh, he's like a third defenseman back there. This was a game where, yes, he really was. And it wasn't just with the stick handling and being able to execute on the plays. It was also the bravery involved. There were a couple times where you've got a flyer or two flyers forechecking. He's jumping jumping out of the crease to retrieve a puck and then just knock it away into a safe place or knock it to a teammate that can make a good play. And he very, very – I don't think he made any mistakes with it either. Everything he came out, he succeeded in doing. And it was important because this game, Dan, had a combined 45 shots on net. And most of those were in the second period. This was definitely not a game if you loved shots on target or even lots of saves per se. But uh, both teams were dumping and chasing a lot. And Brodeur provided the equalizer or the neutralizer to a lot of those dumping attempts by Philadelphia. So instead of making the game all about, oh, look how strong and you know nasty we can be in the corners or on the sideboards fighting for pucks, Brodeur would just take that puck and defuse the situation before it even becomes a situation. And it was... You know, it's just another hallmark of why he is so fantastic as a goaltender, because he was able to do this. Brian Boucher, on the other hand, who, mind you, was having a good season that year, he was not as confident, not as able, and he just, you know, doesn't have the skill set to do that. And that's fine. You know, job one is to stop the puck, not play it. But Brodeur playing the puck was very much a crucial reason why the Flyers, as much as they tilted the ice, they didn't get very many shots actually on target 
in the first and third periods in particular. Mm-hmm. And they were there's a lot of mention of the limiting of shots because in game six, the Devils had limited Philadelphia to just 13 total shots. That's right. Which was just as impressive of a way to to bring the series back to Philly, as you can think of, as earlier in that same playoff season, the Devils had a game against Toronto where they limited them. This was a playoff game to six shots. Yeah, six total shots all game. And so much of it has to do with that stick handling ability of Brodeur's where he kills so many dump and chase rushes that, you know, he's not just going to be someone that sits back in his net and waits for the play to come to him. He's going to go out there and confidently handle the puck. And he had to do his primary job a little bit in the first five minutes. And the Devils finally get their first shot off the stick of Alex McGillney. And it looked like it might have been going wide even, but Boucher still had to make a save uh, towards the short side. And mm-hmm. After that, it was when the Devils got their first opportunity, their first look um, at sustained offense as Keith Jones straight up punched Brian Rafalski in the face. Yeah, live on the broadcast, I, I re-rounded it a whole bunch of times because they didn't do have the replays of the penalties on ESPN. They showed that later. And I thought, OK, that seemed kind of soft. It looks like he just kind of lunged at him. Later in the game, it was clear as day. He, punched, he just socked him in the nose. Yeah. <laughs> like, and... and this, this, this is a good time as any to bring this up, Dan. You know, this is 2000. You know, granted, I was a teenager. You were younger than a teenager. You were, I guess, a preteen mm-hmm. in that regard. But, you know, so so to me, it's, it doesn't seem like that long ago. But it, and honest, unfortunately, it was, and that means I'm old. But more importantly than that is that it doesn't seem like we can consider this game to be like a modern era game. But mm. in many ways, it's very different than what you would see today. Like, you know, you would see that in a playoff game or in a high rivalry game. OK, there'd be some more you know, stuff being gone. But my goodness, a lot of this stuff could have happened in that 1980s game that we watched yeah. <laughs> for last week's episode. Like straight up. Yeah, here's a fist to the face. Yeah, I'm just going to hug you. OK, I'm going to high stick you in the head. Oh, you're going to go down and bleed. But there's not going to be a penalty because the ref ain't going to call this in the third period because that's just how it is. And so the penalties that were called in this game were <laughs> like a thousand percent legit and a thousand percent stupid because you had to do something really dumb and obvious to get a call in this game. Yeah, and so that's that's the surprising thing there that they actually called something like that, given what we know about the context of the time, but also what we know about the fact that Game 6 had no penalties. That was yep. an interesting wrinkle to it as well. And right away, you know, they could see why... Um, these teams were so were, were attempting to be so disciplined, at least early on in the game, as the Devils capitalized with all four Flyers drifting to one side, leaving Patrick Eliash completely exposed um, on the opposite side of the net for an easy tap in. And that came from Arnott and Holik. So that's. Yep. Holik yeah. had a great keep on, on Desjardins uh, rim around. That's why all four Flyers were on that one side, because they were expecting. Um, either to compete for that puck or that Desjardins rim around would clear and they could go forth and, you know, push it out. But uh, Holy kept it in, got it down to Arnott, who was way wide open behind the goal line. And then he made a great pass to Eliash in front. Nobody was going to stop Eliash. And Brian Boucher definitely didn't. So it was a wonderful power play goal. And it was probably the last great looking offensive opportunity we would see for uh, for a while in this game. Yeah, for sure. As you know, the Devils took the lead, but still Philadelphia was very much pressing on and on and on. And I think that that moment or that whole trend was when Scott Stevens decided, OK, I've got to change the narrative of this game a little bit. I've got to change the momentum and launch one of the very 
I think one of the most controversial hits of his career in retrospect, but in the moment it wasn't penalized. It looks like um, it looked no. like Lindros did have his head down, but um, it was. <laughs> you know, wait, what? That what? one? Yeah, that one. I don't think it was. It was. It was totally down. No, the head was down. Oh, I, th- I thought you meant it was penalized. No, it wasn't penalized no. at all. But no, it wasn't penalized at all because it was a it was a legal play. <laughs> yeah. So Lindros <laughs> had his head down, and of course, knowing you know, what we know about Eric Lindros, he had a history of concussions. He'd already missed a lot of time that season and had to speak with the the coach and GM of the Flyers to even have a chance to play in that playoff season. And of course, the, the worst thought came to everyone where, is this the hit that ended his career? Is this the hit that really, you know, shattered him as a player at 27 years old? And it was it was tough to watch for sure, but it's still a matter of momentum changing, where Stevens delivered that hit, he delivered it within the bounds, and really from that point on, that's when I think the crowd was really taken out of it and really shaken by what they saw. I, I have to disagree a bit about what happened here. Um, just to go back here, I know in the last episode I, co- I compared this to the Chuck Bednarnik hit, and I did a little history, and I found out the Chuck Bednarnik hit was actually more impactful in the sense that that hit actually ended the game between the the Giants and the Eagles back then and you know it forced a fumble and it also knocked out Frank Gifford for literally over a year in football and this was 1950s the 1950s if you were playing football back then you you were a tough customer so to be knocked out for a full year means you got destroyed um but similar to that you know it was a legal hit you know just straight up you know, blind. I don't want to say blindsided, but you know, guy who is unaware just runs into a brick wall of muscle, and um, the brick wall wins. So, so that was, I guess, the comparison point. But here's the thing that strikes me watching back on it 20 years later, Dan. Like in in games today, in today's day and age of hockey games in the NHL, and, and I imagine this is also true in like junior hockey and European hockey. We're at a point where you throw a hard hit at somebody. Not not an illegal hit, just a hard hit, you know, just like a big, loud check. And all of a sudden, you know, oh, you got to answer for the bell. You got to respond to this. We're going to have a scrum. We're going to have a fight. We're going to, you know, how dare you do that? And it's like, dude, I just threw a legal hit. Like, what are you mad about? Here's the striking thing, Dan. Nobody went after Stevens in this game. Mm-hmm. Nobody. Like, you would have had. of him. <laughs> well, well. They did show on the broadcast, because again, this was the ESPN feed, they did show that, you know, Stevens lowered the boom on several other flyers earlier in the series on top of the fact he's Scott Stevens. This is kind of his thing. Notably, uh, Damon Lankow in game two, taking him out with a concussion. But as we know, Lankow eventually came back to play in this game as well. Yeah, and he played a lot in this game, yeah. too. He played over 21 minutes. Which in this just shows game. you what the protocol was like in those times. Well, yeah, but also players back then, you know, they you'd almost have to like cripple them to make sure they wouldn't play in a playoff right. game. It's not much less a game seven on your home rank for an you know, opportunity to go play for the greatest trophy in sports. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the, the amazing thing is that the crowd got angry and that made sense, you know? So therefore anytime the flyers would lay down a hit on a devil and there were plenty of those, cause this is obviously a game seven in 2000. Um, so, you know, they, they got their, I guess, bloodlust, but no flyer went out of their way to like target Stevens or target another player. Like I never got a sense. There was like no post whistle beefs or scrums or arguments. Like it was almost like, okay, you took out our guy, but we need to win this game. We, we're not going to do anything stupid in response to this mm-hmm. or get, get our pound of flesh, so to speak, or um, whatever analogy you want to call it. 
and, and therefore take a penalty and then give you guys another p- power play and us going down to nothing in our own home rink in a game seven for a trip for the Stanley Cup playoffs. That's the most remarkable thing about this. Mm-hmm. Like if you saw that hit today, obviously one, it would be penalized because there's rule 48 for for head contact. And two, you know, somebody would have gone up to Stevens. Oh, what are you doing? Throwing your shoulder around like you're some big tough guy, you know, and, and Scott going, um, I, I am a big tough guy. Right. That's my thing. <laughs> I don't know what to do. Uh, you know, somebody would have done that today. But back then I was like, I was, I couldn't recall, like no flyer, like pointed even a finger at Stevens. And the thing is Stevens, you know, le- leveled some other flyers and they, and again, the flyers didn't go back and go, nope, I'm not going to take any exception to this. I'm just going to keep playing the game. I didn't hear a whistle. We're going to keep playing. You know, later later in the first period, like yeah, he uh, essentially tabletopped a guy behind the net. Yeah, Keith Pr- Keith Primo, who's not a small dude. Yeah, like Keith Primo's a fairly large dude at uh, officially listed at six five two twenty, and you know, Stevens basically hits him with a picture perfect hip check, and he goes you know head over butt and uh, falls to the ice. Primo just gets up and keeps going because he knows he's got a he's got a puck to chase. Because oh my goodness, this game had a lot of puck chasing. And that's a big reason why after that big hit, there was no shots on goal for either team for over seven minutes. Yeah. So everybody was just getting blocked, missing, failing on passes. It was just loosey goosey, all sort of stuff. So I I think you can contribute it to a combination of a couple things, mostly being fatigue because this series took a huge toll on everyone. This series was, you know, tightly played brutal. Both teams played, similarly in terms of how they tried to limit their own mistakes and uh, capitalize on the other team. And when both teams are doing that, they're not going to make too many mistakes or too many openings for, uh, you know, wide open offense. Yeah, there were some moments of quickness, but whenever a team entered the zone, the structure was there on both sides. People, oh, yeah. You know, players were responsible and at their assignments. And really, it was just a few mistakes that were accounting for all the goal scoring in this game. But it was really, really tightly contested and a lot of block shots like you said a lot of broken plays in the neutral zone a lot of turning the puck over left and right and you know it not in a way that was a mistake per se but really in a way that was kind of tentative and really meant to emphasize not making a mistake on their own end very yeah, careful I mean, yeah there were no breakaways in this game i don't think there was even an odd man rush i think there was maybe like one or two there was in the entire game almost a two-on-one and then almost the second player had to go for a line change because they were yeah. exhausted yeah exactly it was that sort of stuff so uh, to that extent you didn't also have any big flashy saves i mean there were a couple times where Bordor definitely robbed Simon, a very young simone gagne and leclerc on the rebound uh during the peter sakura penalty because sakura decided cross-checking uh goodness who do i have tagged here uh he did something stupid. Yeah, he cross-checked someone in their zone. Oh, he, oh yeah, he cross-checked Re- Mark Recchi from behind, like, in yeah. the slot. like As if dude. no one would see it. Yeah, and then, you know, later on, you see Lemieux getting a high stick, even though Jordy Hole should have gotten called for hooking since that happened. But <laughs> again, it was like John Madden wins a puck race. Dan McGillis decides to, you know, target him because he's Dan McGillis and takes a boarding penalty. Like the penalties in this game were had to be really obvious and really dumb stuff where I'm sure both coaches are like, guys, not tonight. Yeah. This cannot happen tonight. But at the same time, I'm surprised Robinson and Ramsey never told his players to stop dumping and chasing because it wasn't working for the devils. It was sad to see like even the a line dumping it in like Patrick Elias skating it up and then getting to that red line and just slap shot it in like, dude, you're Patrick Elias. Just skate it in, man. 
Same for the Flyers. Yeah, they outshot the Devils by nine, but that's mostly in the second period where the dumping and chasing seemed to cease a little bit. I'm saying there was like a there's a connection between that, Dan. But for whatever reason, the coaches didn't figure it out. Yeah, and it was, you know, it's something that as much as Eliash was the hero of this game, I think McGillis was the goat. I think McGillis was was responsible for most of the issues the Flyers had in terms of, um, you know, allowing goals, in terms of just really taking the momentum uh, away from them. And that hit on Madden could have been so much worse if Madden didn't pick his head up at the last second and narrowly duck out of the way. Oh, absolutely. And here's the thing, Dan. Dan McGillis played 24 minutes and 8 seconds in this game. Wow. Only only Desjardins played more than him. Mm-hmm. So it almost begs the question, like, this is a team that led the division, led the Eastern Conference. How, Dan McGillis was your number two. I guess he just had a really bad night. But, oh, man, this was not good. Um, if that connects not- the way he intended, I think that's a major in any era of the game. Oh, yeah, definitely. If there was blood, that, that would be a major. That's the rule of thumb on a legal penalty. Um, happened to Colin White in a regular season game. Happened to Steve Bernier in you know game six of the 2012 Stanley Cup Finals. Um, you draw blood on a bad hit, that's five. Mm-hmm. You know, it is what it is. But amazingly, there were no fives. And um, despite all the obstruction that was happening from both sides – the rest were only focused on the really obvious stuff, and uh, eventually got to a point where they just stopped calling anything. They just figured, you guys go out there and figure it out, you know. For sure, and you know they. It took a while to, you know, the first period, as we mentioned, had most of the penalties, and that after that boarding by, they basically traded penalties on and off, um, and there's a lot of four on four time as during that boarding power play of the Devils yeah. had, Patrick Elias made a mistake, or Sakura made a mistake, and Patrick Elias ended up taking a high sticking penalty. Yeah, he um, he clipped Manderville in the face. Yeah, and here's where we mention as well that. The other matchup on the other side was Dallas versus Colorado, and we all know who won that one. But it's mm-hmm. interesting to note how these teams were so like all these teams. Let's we're talking the Devils, Detroit, Colorado, Dallas, just so prominent um, and getting far in the playoffs over and over again that you knew it was going to be a great one no matter what happened. But it, oh, yeah. it was something that I think the the broadcasters on the Russian side were very much saying that they would want to see either New Jersey, Colorado, or Dallas. Philadelphia for intrigue reasons uh Mm. sucks for them because it didn't happen but it it ended up being interesting to see some of the players they were talking about and how how many repeated trips they had this far into the playoffs so that was just a nice reminder to see what was going on on the other side and how Dallas managed to get to the Stanley Cup final themselves but yeah so in terms of the first period it really was the Devils holding on to a one nothing lead and Philadelphia having the bigger share of the chances, but not too many dangerous ones. No, and Stevens was definitely dominant in this game. As much as the game is about his big hit on Eric Lindros, he was just dominant out there. Like anytime he was out there, he made the right play. He was in the right position. He didn't hesitate to play the puck, and he knew when he needed to defer to um, Rafalski. As necessary, he was just in command. So I understand Stevens' big reputation is about throwing the big tough hits, but this was also a masterclass in how he played the game of defense. Unfortunately, he would make one mistake a little bit later in the second period, which we are getting to right now. So the second period starts. It starts pretty slowly. Um, yeah, 
again. Not much happening there, and that's when McGilney has a puck bounce over his stick. That was yeah, probably one of the best opportunities of the game for that line. Yeah, it was unfortunate because Arnett had a beautiful setup for that, but unfortunately, it is what it is. Um, but hey, this this period this was the open period of all three periods. Yeah, <laughs> as both teams uh both teams, if I'm not mistaken, combined for goodness. As mentioned, there was 45 shots in this game, and I think 20 of them were in this period alone. The the, the game, quote-unquote, opened up, uh, so to speak. Um, unfortunately, a penalty caused the downfall of the shutout. Yes. And, and this was and this was a, this was another throwback, Dan. This was an obstruction holding call. And it was a very good call, too, because he Colin White literally grabbed Mark Recchi's stick to prevent him from skating forward. <laughs> So yeah, yeah. he literally obstructed him. No, I mean, it, it was fair. It was definitely fair. And I think yes. they were playing with fire because Philadelphia at that point was already over three on the power play. And granted that not all of those were full power plays. Um, yeah. But, you know, you're, you're going to get burned if you keep taking penalties. And eventually they did when mm-hmm. Scott Stevens pushed John LeClaire into Martin Brodeur. Rick Tockett cleaned up a rebound. And all of a sudden it's one to one. The crowd's back in it and things get even more tense. Now, when I saw that live, my first thought was I saw Stevens knock LeClaire down into Bordeaux. And then I saw LeClaire kind of push, lunge himself forward just a little bit more. Yeah. But I, I imagine that even if you ran it under today's rules, that probably wouldn't call goaltender interference because they would see Scott Stevens taking down LeClaire and then right. basically saying, you know, it is what it is. But yeah, you're right. The crowd got jacked at this point and they just went from getting. Um, excited over any hit that the Flyers threw to, yeah, we're going to win this game now. We're going to win this game. You know, the Flyers are 10-0 and 0 when LeClaire gets a point, and he technically got an assist on that and, and also interfered with Perdor. But, you know, <laughs> hey, you know, they're, they're jacked up. They're they're excited, and as they should be. It's Game 7 for right for the Stanley Cup Finals on their home rink. And I'm, uh, I'm sure it played very differently um, on ESPN because the crowd was more into it, so the broadcasters are feeding off that energy. But once that Philadelphia tied it up, the Russian broadcasters pretty much decided that it was either going to be a mistake that leads to a goal, and that would be it for the scoring of this game, or that it was going to overtime. Everything from this point on was... Mm-hmm. Very monotone. I mean, even up to that point, the goal calls were pretty monotone, too. And they 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 had a sense. And I think it's something that, you know, looking back at this game, there is a sense of, wow, this game really feels like it's going to be decided by at most one goal. Definitely. But there were mistakes all over the place in this game, Mm -hmm. especially in the third period, too, because to your point, you know, this has been a long series. It's been a physical series. It's a rivalry series. series. Everybody's tense. The Flyers don't want to be the team that blows it. The Devils don't want to let this go away after coming so far. So, you know, from a 10,000 foot view, you think, oh, man, this is going to be low shots. It's going to be very much defensive hockey. It's going to be well played. And in reality, no, it was just very sloppy. Like both teams were dumping dumping pucks away. You know, they were you know making one pass, two pass, and then they give it up to the other team or it gets blocked. And then they go forward and do the same thing. Like a lot of the devil's attempts at offense just died at the red line because they were either dump it in for a change, dump it in and fail the chase or lose the, lose the puck straight up, especially the whole eek line of uh, Claude Lemieux, Claude, uh, Claude Lemieux, Bobby Holik, And I believe, um, Oh, who was their initial winger? I th- want to say it wasn't Breland. 
Um, it may have been Pen- – oh, it was Pandolfo. Pandolfo, yeah. Yeah, Pand- that's right. There's, here's another throwback. Pandolfo, and who definitely got penalty killing time next to John Madden. So, you know, that, that combo was starting to form. Um, but, yeah, that line was not getting it done because we were just losing pucks all over the place. And ironically, this is the open period of all the shots in this game. Yeah, and both teams' cycles were just not effective. It, no, they were – like, you know, credit to the defense, but also shame on the – on the offensive players they just failed to execute and therefore you know again i don't know if they there was the tension or is just whatever it was it, it was just like sloppy i i have expected this to be like a well-played game where it's like everybody's just in great position in reality no i think both teams made it easier for their defenses than necessary by the way uh so at some point late in the second period i, I wrote a note saying that hooks effectively became legal and slashes yeah. to the arm also became legal. Right. As I think after the five with the last five minutes of the second period, the referee crew just decided to say it's prison rules. Unless you're bleeding, don't bother me. <laughs> I'm, I'm only going to call icings and offsides and pucks out of play and goals. You you guys figure it out over here. And those but kinds I, of you know clutches and grabs really only start to happen when both sides are exhausted. When both sides have yeah. no more energy to catch up to people using only their feet, they have to um, you know use their arms, use their sticks to impede people. But if it was happening on both sides, if it was being called the same way, then fine. I, I think I think as long as that's the case case and no one's getting seriously hurt then so be it it's it's the playoffs yeah. and you're always going right. to see it called a little maybe not today but in that era certainly a little more loosely yeah well i mean remember how earlier we saw keith jones you know punch rafalski in the face and he got a roughing call for that well near the end of the second period colin white gets tripped by jonesy and then white you know recovers and then just slugs him in the face and he goes down like a sack of potatoes mm-hmm. And there's no call. Yep. Like I'm like I'm legitimately going. How is that not a penalty on White? Like <laughs> you literally called this a period ago. <laughs> but you know whatever, it's fine. But that second period, you know, the Flyers definitely pushed the issue more. I think they fed off the goal that they scored and mm-hmm. definitely pushing to score. Nobody had a consistent attack, but the Flyers had more of it. Whole equal line was not having a good time, but Berdora was great. Stevens was great. Uh, I was surprised that the pairing of Ken Danico and Scott Niedermeyer was as effective as it was because mm-hmm. I wrote in my notes initially, no, Colin White's going to show up next to Niedermeyer. That's just how it works. But no, Dano stayed with Niedermeyer and it worked out like that. Then again, this is 2000. This is in 2003 where Dano hasn't entirely lost all of his speed yet. You know, mm-hmm. so he was able to keep up. But, uh, you know, Niedermeyer played a ton in this game. Dano so was to- leading some breakouts even. Oh, yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, to be fair, his side of the ice was open for a reason. I think the Flyers knew that Scott Niedemeyer on the puck means you better double up on that side. I know. It was just still weird to see, though. It was still, like, bizarre to see him puck handling behind the net and, like, curling around people. Oh, yeah. I'm sure he would tell you, you know, oh, oh, I was a great stick handler. You know, you know, they they call me the greatest hands on the rink. (laughs) And the, the that was a terrible Danwood impersonation. I'm no, sorry. You did. One. You certainly tried your best, and uh, it was just a little bit off, Dan. You know, the, a the, the, bit. the accent wasn't there. You know, <laughs> the, the the cadence was just a little bit off. But you know, we just did it okay. You know, just get out there. You know, we always like the tough stuff, and oh, there was a lot of tough stuff in this third period. Well, so before that, there was only one other penalty in that second period, uh, and that was on Luke Richardson for slashing. Yes, and um, yeah, he just straight up. Let's see. No, no, no. He blew up Niedermeyer on a hit, and that was legal. Oh, yeah. He slashed Mogilny away from the play. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, just straight up, like, 
whack. Yeah. It wasn't even on the camera. All of a sudden you saw Mogilny like shaking his arm and it's like, oh, okay. That that now what now you know why. Right. Um, and both... then and then also another interesting play that I took note of was um Keith Jones flying to the ice as if he had been shot as the butt end of Colin White's stick did not even particularly come close to him. Um, yeah, Jones was a diver. Yeah. <laughs> Which was which was weird to see because you know I've obviously heard his voice so many times at this point, and heard his insight so many times, and I respect the man, but I did not respect him in this game. Uh, certainly, no, I was, and I was stunned when he started the game with Eric Lindros and John Leclerc. I was almost like, which one of these three doesn't belong? Oh, the broadcaster. And well, and that Leclerc that you mentioned, um, he was. In front of the net, got pushed in, as we mentioned, for the Rick Tockett goal, but he had another glorious opportunity. He was a strong, strong net front presence and really could only be handled by Stevens as he outmuscled White you know, several times, knocked into Brodeur again, and uh, mm -hmm. was really a nuisance the entire game. Oh, definitely. And as it should be, because, you know, through that entire playoff series with, you know, Eric Lindros being out injured, LeClaire was their one of their main men. You know, he was one of their top dudes, so to speak. I mean... You know, he finished his playoffs with six goals, uh, seven assists, and most importantly, 64 shots on net. Like, the guy, you know, averaged a ton of shots per game, and, you know, he, they were all, like, within 20 feet of the net. Yeah. But that, that was his game. That was what he was about, and, you know, as you said, he was a super tough dude. And, and Colin White, you know, he ain't a small dude either. Like, yeah. this was very much, you know, big, tired, sweaty men, you know, slapping meat, you know, <laughs> in front of the net. But he did and, look uh, like a rookie in that game for sure. Oh, he did. Yeah, he, there was a reason why he was on the third pairing with Malakov as opposed to uh, chilling with Niedermeyer as we would see in future video games to come. Right. <laughs> well, that uh, as we go into the third period, this was not a fun period for Vladimir uh, Vladimir Malakov, as I'll say, but Malakov to the rest of you. Um, uh, yep. And uh, as he started off by taking a high stick from not Damon Lankow. Not called. Not called. And then later on in the period, he would get a puck to the face. <laughs> yep. It, it was a rough night for uh, number seven. I was, I, you know, I I was impressed with how well he was confident on the puck. Like, mm -hmm. I want, I don't want to say he was like Niedermeyer on the puck, but he was handling the puck pretty well. And honestly, between him and Colin White, I will take anybody but Colin White, you know, leading a breakout. <laughs> um, pretty well yeah, and pretty this, often, I'd say. Yeah, but he was definitely... Um, you know, he, he was a good asset to have on that third pairing. And, you know, you know, it allowed the other defensemen to get a couple uh, shifts off. But unfortunately, because of the aforementioned puck to the face, he he did miss, I think, a couple shifts. And therefore, he only did play 14 minutes of this game. So in a way, I could forgive you if you forgot he was in this game. Yeah. But as a defenseman, that's perfectly fine. However, at this point, if you wanted to see Randy McKay and Steve Kelly, well, forget it. They're they're. Their nights were basically done at this yeah. point. The, the, the bench was shortened. They noted um, the, the announcers, even though I don't know Russian, they clearly were not super happy about how John Madden's on the line. Sergey Brillian's not where he was. What's going on? Well, so like, basically they were confused as to – they weren't confused. They were saying, oh, you know, Brillian's been – all right, he's been quick throughout the game, and uh, yeah, now he's yeah. playing with... And then when they said the players' names, they are like, wait a minute. Uh, he definitely had a better chance to set up people for success with better scoring wingers. I, I don't think they were too upset. I think they were just kind of like realizing that, oh, maybe he hasn't had so great a game after all. Well, you know, given that they were so monotone, you know, I'll take any type of emotion as anything. Yeah. Fair. But... Uh... 
Yeah, I mean, Mogilny got mugged in this third period. No call. Mm-hmm. No one really had an edge. Like every every team was basically dumping pucks in, taking a couple hits, losing the puck in the or and then lose the puck in the neutral zone. Rinse, repeat. You know, it made for a fast period. But at the end of this game, Dan, this period had a total of eight shots on net. <laughs> yeah, this was or, somehow or each. this was somehow more tentative and timid than the first period. Even this was somewhere at the moment where. I don't know if they both just mutually decided that maybe it's best to just avoid mistakes and see what happens in overtime, but that's what it it, certainly felt like. Yeah, and as you said, tons of broken plays. So, of course, you didn't know whether or not they were just too timid or they were just failing a lot. Mm -hmm. I mean, Craig Berube came the closest for the Flyers to having an opportunity. He had a killer pass um, set up to him, but he just whiffed. He just missed it entirely, thankfully. The A-line was the only line for New Jersey that had any general type of offense going and that was important mm-hmm. because two-thirds of that line would provide the difference maker that kind of came out of nowhere in this game yeah so it looked like this game was so hell-bent on going to overtime it was ridiculous and yep really both teams had already seemingly mutually agreed to that and all of a sudden completely out of nowhere the A-line combines, and it's McGilney who is still on. Um, yeah, he Yeah, he sent a shot towards the goal that Jason Arnott barely, barely managed to get a swipe of the stick on. And Eliash stick lifts McGillis in front of the net uh, like the punk he is and sends it right past Boucher. And Eliash is jumping for joy. There's 2.32 left, and Philadelphia is stunned. Philadelphia is silenced. And now it's just about holding on. And, you know, honestly, it didn't seem all that difficult for the Devils to do so. No. And here's the, I want to talk more about the goal, partially because I wrote a whole post about this way back in 2013. I broke this down with the. I guess the same resolution that we saw this game in, right. uh, albeit not in Russian. Um, but the the key here was actually Scott Stevens again. And again, this is another example of how dominant he was in this game, not just in his own end, but he was able to get to the blue line effectively to keep whatever little offense that could happen alive. And this was important because he got a very important keep in that. Um, I don't know if he was, well, he did kind of attempt a shot on net, but he kept the puck in net. Uh, from McGillis's clearance. So he denied McGillis's clearance. So that's Mark one against Mr. McGillis on this play. And then Stevens misses the shot wildly, but Mogilny wins a race against Luke Richardson to win that puck. He gets it over to Arnott and Arnott gets destroyed. He gets smashed by Primo. Like Primo gets him pretty good here. And part of the reason why the shot goes astray is because it just barely got underneath Primo's skate. So, Again, you know, this what is an illegal hit because your feet are supposed to be on the ice. But thankfully, he wasn't being legal here. Um, and that's how and most importantly, Elias got behind McGillis and had therefore inside position so he could get that stick lift, see the puck right in front of him. McGillis, of course, when he got stick lift, threw his stick in the air like, you know, he just didn't care. And Elias had Boucher beat dead to rights. And it's 2-1. The Flyers players are stunned. Ramsey doesn't look like he knows what's happening. The fly, the Flyers fans are just like, oh, no. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, no. And because they know what was about to happen, the, the, the famous, the reviled trap was set. Yes. And at that point, it, it 
didn't just shell shock the crowd. It didn't just take them completely out of the game as an element to help the Flyers along. It completely shell shocked the team. They could not string anything together. And when they did have the puck in the devil's zone, they were closed on immediately. They were, oh yeah, they were just completely stunned for the remainder of the time in the game. There was not a single moment where it looked like they could even things up after Eliash scored the goal. And that, in a way, like they might as well have gone to overtime because the game effectively ended when Eliash scored. Yeah, and again, what were we saying all game long? You know, both teams were doing dump and chase hockey. Well, guess what? When you're playing against a trap team like the Devils, who are so set in their 1-2-2, and you weren't already succeeding with your dump-ins because they weren't doing so in the third period at all, then forget it. It just was a failed effort, and it actually boggles my mind a little bit in retrospect that Ramsey didn't try to get his team to do anything different because whatever they were doing just wasn't working. It was the equivalent of a guy just pounding his fist at a brick wall, hoping that, you know, the next punch will knock it down. No, bro, it's not being knocked down. And on top of that, you got a lot of awesome work at the very end of the game. Like Danico had an awesome shift where he he nearly got beat. Then he recovered like a madman, tipped the puck away, and gave Mogilny a real opportunity to really ice the game. But he was fouled from behind. Of course, there was no call. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Boucher calls to leave the ice. He does so. So the Flyers have six on the ice. But they just can't get set up in the zone at all. Breland's having a great shift. Holik's having a great shift. Lemieux has a great shift. Breland comes on for Pandolfo. Stevens and Niedermeyer out there. It's basically, you know, the Devils are just making sure they're keeping everything to the outside. There's one last scrum along the sideboards with eight seconds left. I think Pandolfo got it out. I'm not positive about that, but at eight seconds, it went over the blue line and it was just like game over, bro. It's just not having, there was one last uh, routine saved by Brodeur. Devils win. Devils win and go on to face. Uh, They didn't know who they would face actually at that moment. as Dallas and Colorado were playing the next day. Yeah, exactly. So, but they knew that they were going to face one of the best teams in the Western conference as Yes, okay, St. Louis had the better record, but, you know, Colorado and Dallas were, you know, standouts. Obviously, Dallas is coming off the Stanley Cup win in 1999. Colorado's the up-and-comers, and, of course, they have Patrick Waugh, la-di-da. Um, well, and the Western Conference was rolling with a four-season uh, four win streak in the Stanley Cup Finals as well. That too, yeah, exactly. So it's very um, potent there, and they're just waiting to see if they take on, you know, Brett Hull and Ed Belfour. Uh, or they take on Patrick Waugh and the Colorado Avalanche and Joe Sackick and that really, really, you know, potent, potent pair of teams that they could have faced. And eventually, as we know, they did end up facing them both. Yeah. And uh, they went one for one. So, you know, they got at least one banner out of it. Right. But uh, getting back to this game, Dan, um, you know, as much as this game is remembered for Stevens's big hit and even during the broadcast they were showing like the hit and then showing a picture of you know Eliash scoring goal and saying emotion <laughs> and then they showed Rick Tockett I guess cheering for no reason and I guess that's all they the the, the ESPN people had at that moment because there were a lot of really mo- memorable moments from this game like if you love dump and chase hockey not leading to a whole lot of activity other than beef and uh, a whole lot of hooking grabbing hugging you know, punching. Let's you call know, it a lot tension, of... though. Let, let, let's yeah. Let's call let's it call tension. tension. 
you would expect a rivalry game to have a lot more energy than this one. I think the Devils Pittsburgh game we we watched had a lot more energy in it. It had a lot of a lot more openness and clearly a lot more offense. Um, but you know, it it it, it reminds it. It just shows that outside of Eliash's goal and Steven's hit, there wasn't really a lot to remember out of this one. Like there was no, you know, moment to say this is what this game was about or this is what this season's was about or this is what the series was about. It's here's a game. Both teams don't want to lose. Both teams are struggling a bit to get going. And then Patrick Eliash had the magic to make it happen. He gets a two goal night. And for the Devils, you know, Brodor had a strong game. Uh, in and out of the net. Stevens had a very strong game, and so did the rest of the Devils in their own end of the rink. You know, Stevens and Rafalski had a very great night as a pairing. Niedermeyer and Dano had a great night. Uh, there were some rough times for Colin White at times, but otherwise, Malikov and White had a good game. That's all you can really say about yeah. this. One. Well, you know, this wasn't this wasn't the you know blood feud you know ender like 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 you would see in a movie or a professional wrestling match or anything like that. It, you know, the hit happened and then they played a game of hockey. Yeah, yeah, that's that's probably the best way to phrase it. And um, you know that that'll bring us to the end of this game. And at this point, we've covered a game from the 2003 Cup run. We've covered a game from 2000. So it's only fitting that we move to the one that started it all, and that would be Game 1 in 1995 against the Detroit yes. Red Wings when the Devils announced their presence to the rest of the league. Now, as we all know, um, most of the league considered Detroit the heavy, heavy, heavy front runner in this series, and we all know how that ended. But this Game 1 win established that these players, Stevens, Niedermeyer, um, you know, all the guys that were there for Brodeur, um, Danico, all the guys that were there for the three cups, they were not guys to be trifled with. This 95 Devils team was the one that really brought them prominence and kept hockey in the state of New Jersey, essentially. So, uh, well, <laughs> there's business dealings and such, but I think it was a big reason. Actually, well... I don't know how much you want to keep this on the broadcast, uh, <laughs> but I actually re- found a New York Times article. I- I'll have to dig it out um, saying that uh, the threat to leave New Jersey wasn't as real as it felt. Oh, sure. But like, I think, yeah, I, it was I think... John McMullen tr- trying to, sh- you know, negotiate with the NG- NJSEA at the time. Oh, sure. But and... it's easier to make a case for them staying in the public eye if they just won the Stanley Cup as well. True. This, and there was definitely a lot of fan support in that sense. In that sense, there were plenty of signs of you know, keep us in New Jersey. You know, you know, how dare you, you know, make us leave? <laughs> I do remember that uh, when the series did go to New Jersey for Game Three after the Devils scored, there were all sorts of different things thrown out onto the ice, uh, mocking Detroit's history of throwing octopus on the ice. There was definitely a f- big foam purple octopus with a pitchfork in it thrown on the ice, <laughs> which is really impressive. It looked like it was a homemade. Um, made a octopus too very nice job back in 1995 <laughs> but seriously this was a team that featured a younger bobby holik a 24 year old bill garrett a 21 year old brian ralston and scott niedemeyer and sergey Barilin. this was brodor's second professional season in the nhl or full season in the nhl and you had a lot of other guys that those 90s fans remember kind of fondly like you had the crash line with mckay peluso and holik you had Alexander Cimac on the roster for um, you know a, a second. I don't think he made it to the playoffs, unfortunately. But you did have Stefan Richet and Claude Lemieux, the, the, the guys from Montreal that Lou had to have because you get guys from Montreal. You had a 30-year-old Ken Danico and a 30-year-old Tommy Abeline. And, of course, 
you had Neil Broughton, one of the greatest trade line deadline pickups ever. Yeah, so one of the things I've noticed most about watching these games is, you know, obviously I remember uh, parts of 2000 and a lot of 2003, but comparing it to have you know what i've seen from the team these last couple seasons it's just weird to me to think that such such unbelievably high caliber players were devils for such a long time and really it's it's nice to look back and see players of that skill level of that talent level wear the devil's uniform and hopefully we get back to that kind of era again very very soon um but yeah that's the game we'll be covering next time the 1995 game one uh stanley cup final game and that'll be an interesting one i think it'll be something that a lot of people really don't remember just how good that team was. And a lot of people in that moment did not realize just how good that team was until they ended up sweeping the wings. Um, so on a final note, I just wanted to, I'm not sure if this will stay in or not, but Skype tells me it's your birthday, John. So I wanted to wish you a happy birthday. If that's real. It is indeed my birthday. I am 37 years old and I definitely feel that right now on the site because we're doing prospect profiles throughout the week since there's no hockey. Um, and, of course, all the junior leagues and the college leagues and the European leagues, they're done. So, you know, the prospects can't, you know, improve or worsen their uh, projections. And, yep, I am writing about Jeff Sanderson's kid. <laughs> and Brian Ralston's kid is in this draft, too. Oh, John and Madden's every- kid just uh, signed a deal with the L.A. Kings. Yeah, John Madden's kid ha- is <laughs> – is an NA is going to be an NHL player. I'm, I'm getting old, Dan, and I don't like it. It, it. It's frightening and scary. Don't get old, Dan. I don't I'll, recommend it. I'll do what I can. But uh, in any case, happy birthday, John. Thanks for um, continuing to do this with me and with all of us and um, continuing to bring content to the good people who read all about the jersey. That's been our time for this week. Do you have any um, last words you'd like to say for this week? Yes, I'd like to thank everybody who continues to listen to us uh, throughout these uh, difficult times. And please continue to tell your friends, tell your coworkers, even tell your enemies. You know, maybe they maybe they like to listen to us and continue to read all about the jersey because truth be told, you are all the people that matter. All right, awesome. And like John said, thank you again for joining us. Thank you for listening. Thank you for spreading the word. Lots of thanks to go around, and let's keep spreading positivity. We need each other now more than ever, and that goes for any walk of life. And, you know, keep a level head, maintain, and just know that um, one day we'll be out of whatever period of time we're in now in terms of our lifestyles changing so much we will establish a sense of normalcy and we'll be back to watching hockey before you all know it let's just be here for each other and continue to spread joy and positivity and optimism as this goes on so like i said that's been our time for this episode of the garden state of hockey and we'll see you guys next week